Northwestern Michigan College Driveways. From the Mobile Studio at Northwestern Michigan College and the Department of Extended Educational Services, you're listening to NMC Driveways. Hi, John Plow here. Today, we reflect on the halcyon days of NMC's very own printing press, early versions of PowerPoint, and less complicated international travel. Jim Bensley joins us to share about his storied career at the college and the value of a global education. He's our Director of International Services and Service Learning. We're really glad you're listening. I haven't been back to my house since the last episode. This is episode number 12, and we're still on 11th Street in Traverse City, Michigan. If I seem tired, it's because I haven't been sleeping well in my car. I didn't bring my noise machine, and guys, I really rely on it. Jim Bensley, welcome to NMC Driveways, and thank you for letting me hang out next to your house. Great, John. Glad to be here. This is my first corner house on the show. It's very exciting for me. Jim, how long have you been here in Traverse City? Gosh, we've been here, I say we, because my wife and I have been married about 36 years, so I guess you could say about 36 years. Have you guys been in this house the whole time? No, we were actually in a house that was a block and a half down 11th Street. Funny story behind that, when we first got here, my wife was a realtor, and I had just started at the college, and so she came home one day, and then we found out uh, that we were, she was pregnant. Right. And so we're really happy about that. But we thought we need to get a little bit bigger house because the original house was a a, a kind of a small house. And so we started going out to look for houses and we were going out, you know, west side of town. We went out to Holiday Hills area. We looked all over. One day she comes home and she says, I found the perfect house. I said, "Okay, I'll go get the car. I'll pull around front and we can go look at it. She goes, we don't need to. We're just going to walk down a block and a half. Like, what? And so we did, and the house, it didn't look anything like it does now back then. We put a lot of work into it. It is about 122 years old. We saw it. We knew it had some character. We were younger then, and so I put a lot of time into sort of rehabbing it and fixing it up over the years and had had a great time. We love being here in, in the neighborhood, close to the schools. Kids had friends to play with that were in the neighborhood, and of course, in the wintertime, it's so much fun because we can walk downtown and we can ride our bikes and we don't have to drive into the Cherry Festival. Interesting, I had come up here to Traverse City right after college. I came up here to do my student teaching at uh, Traverse City High School back then because there wasn't two high schools. The idea was I would finish that and then I would go on to teach high school someplace. And we got up here and decided... You know, this is this is kind of a nice place. Maybe we'll try and find some sort of work here, stay here for three years, and move out west to Colorado or someplace like that. 
and at the time, what I was doing, I was either looking for a job as a as a teacher in a high school or as a freelancer because I was doing commercial art or graphic design at the time. And so we said, whatever comes across the way first, we'll do. And so the college had an opening as their graphics coordinator, which is actually the job that Meg Young has now. I interviewed for that, got the job, again, with the idea that do it for three years and be gone. Well, that was... 30-some years ago, and I'm still here. You were considering being a visual arts teacher in a high school? Right, both history and art, so looking for either of those. The thing was, I mean, this is Traverse City, right? And a lot of people want to be in Traverse City. So at the time, I think they had a history job that was posted. They had, I want to say, say 350 applicants for that job. And I was right out of college, so I knew I probably didn't stand much of a chance. So... I took the graphics job and, and loved it at the college, did a lot of that work. Back in the days before we had, you know, Macintosh computers and things like that, it was kind of the old school way, right? We had the drawing board, we would spec type, we had a dark room, I would shoot photos and develop those. I mean, it seems like ancient history now, but it was fun. It was. Yeah, talk me through the process of a project. So, yeah, we would get a project. Let's say it was a program at NMC. It was a program brochure that we would do. We'd have to come up with a design, and that would... Well, let me let me back up here. We'll, we'll take a, a poster for an event that was happening. And so we would have to... I, I would come up with a design for that, and then we would have to draw that out. We would use sort of like mount board. It's kind of a, a very slick... Uh, clay-coated board that made a very crisp line. So we would do that, and then we would put um, what's called rubylith over that. And you'd cut that rubylith out. as a little plastic on some transparency. And, and then you'd put little register marks there. You'd align the register marks. So each rubylith sheet was a different color that would be printed. And if you wanted to do a, uh, a photograph, then you'd have to get that made into a halftone. All we had was a typewriter, at the time. So you'd type it out on the typewriter, then you'd use a code to spec it all up and you'd send it out to a commercial entity and they would give you back the clean type and whatever font that you wanted to use. And we'd put it in the waxer, we'd paste that up, we'd shoot it, we'd send it to get um, negatives made. The negatives would make the plates for the printing press. And we had a printing press at NMC, actually down in the basement where the library was, was the, uh, the print room. And so I would work with our print manager down there, and we would we would print off the brochures or the posters or whatever. So it was a much more involved process. When we got the Macintosh computer, that was a lot of fun because you could do a heck of a lot with that. What kind of time frame are we talking about for a project like just a poster? From from the original concept, if we'd come up with a design, it would probably be you know a two week project. When you guys first started using Mac computers. Was that exciting or was that, oh, this is another tool that is supposed to make my life easier and it's driving me insane? <laughs> Actually, both of those. It was, it was exciting at first. And, and again, I was younger. I was, had the energy to learn all of those new programs and was uh, really delved right into it. But interesting enough, and the reason I eventually got out of that position or left that position is because I was tired of sitting at a computer all day. Um, as much as it could do and the fantastic things it could make, I found out that I was just sitting. Whereas before, I'd been, again, going out to get things printed and going out to shoot photos and things like that. So it's a much more active kind of job. 
So that position that you just described is not what you are currently doing. Oh, no. How did that change? Why did that change? As I said, I was uh, looking for something else, and there was a job opening in the admissions office. And again, with my teaching degree, I really wanted to work with students, and I wanted to have more interaction with students. I always had a, a student intern that worked with me, and that was a lot of fun. In fact, Meg was an intern of mine years ago, so <laughs> and has done a fantastic job. I just I, I love the work that she does for NMC. But anyway, so got out of that looking for more interaction with students. And so I was hired in the admissions office, spent a couple of years as an admissions counselor, you know, went out to the high schools and did presentations. And interesting, talk about technology. Back, I want to say it's probably 20 years ago or so, I was one of the first to use PowerPoint. And I was because my brother was into media. His job was in media out in L.A. And he says, you got to try this new program. It's called PowerPoint. You make these slides. You can put animation in it and sound. And we went big guns. We're full guns at this. And so I built this program highlighting NMC. And I had music in it. And I had animation and pictures. And it looked really cool. The only trouble was... We didn't really have the technology at that time that was small enough to take to high school. So I remember lugging this big projector out with me every time I'd go to high school and I'd have extension cords and I have to plug everything in just to show that PowerPoint. I worked in admissions for a couple of years doing that. And then the job of director of admissions came open. I enjoyed the staff that I was working with. I enjoyed working with parents and students and colleagues to interest students in NMC. It just felt right and did that for a number of years and just really enjoyed that. Luckily, the time I got to do that job was the time that NMC hit its largest enrollment in history. It was about 2010 or so. Not to say that we just kind of sat back and let it happen because we worked really hard. In fact, we really tried to get people that had some college, you know, they'd had some college but hadn't completed a degree and just weren't getting anywhere because they needed just a little bit more. So we really reached out to those folks to sort of pull them in and give them the opportunity to complete that degree. But anyway, it was it was nice. It was a, a great time to be in the admissions game. And we were, as I say, busy all the time. People ask me this. They say, well, why are you still at a community college in northern Michigan? And I say, well, there's there's, there's a number of reasons. I, I love the job that I'm doing right now. I, obviously, working with the international factor and being able to travel and get students overseas is, is a great job to have. But I've always believed in the mission of NMC and the reason NMC exists, and that is to give students that might not have the chance to go to a, a larger four-year school because of cost or because their grades aren't quite up to speed. It gives them a chance to start at a, a certain spot and become successful. And over the years at NMC, I've seen that. I've seen the power of what education at our community college can do. And, and that's why I'm still here because, I, again, I see it every day. When I take students overseas and they, let's say they're from Mancelona, they've never been south of Grand Rapids, and all of a sudden they're on the plane for the first time, and it just blows their mind. I mean, this is the world, and you're introducing students to the richness of the world out there. And it's very gratifying. It's very gratifying for me to be involved in that. Where did this love of global culture come from? When I was 10 years old, my, my father was a professor down at CMU, and he took a sabbatical. 
And so I have two brothers and a sister and my mother, and we went to England. And we lived there for a year. And I went to school over in England and made friends and just had had a ball. It was just, it, we lived in a very little village of about 300 people, one of these classic villages where buildings are three, 400 years old kind of thing, and really felt comfortable with being in another culture. When I was in high school, my dad had the opportunity to teach at an American Air Force base in Germany for four months, and then on the island of Crete off of Greece for four months. And so we went as a family over there, and again, we're immersed in the local culture. We didn't live on the base. We lived in the town, in the German town, the German village, and in a Greek town of Araculon. I just found that I was excited by this. It was really sort of a chance for me to learn and to grow and, and to really interact with people that I wouldn't have gotten the chance to, just sort of being back here. I kind of look at the original interest being shaped at that point in time. When I was at NMC, one of the jobs I had as director of admissions was to work with international students. So I was uh, in charge of them. I was the PDSO, which is the designated official for visas and things like that. And I was also the advisor for the International Student Club. So I got a, lot, a chance to know a lot of these students from everywhere, you know, all over the world. Because we usually had about 35 students, international students each year. By interacting with them and learning from them, it gave me the desire to want to go to where they're from. We had a vice president at the time, Chris Weber, who had worked in China. And she and I and, and Lindsay Dickinson and the director of our aviation program at the time went to China to explore the opportunity to possibly recruit international students from China. While we were coming back on the plane, Chris and I were sitting next to each other and she said, I think I know what we need to have here at the college. And so she talked to our former president, Tim Nelson, and they agreed we should do something international. If we're going to be an innovative and a leading college in the state of Michigan and in the country for that matter, now was the time to do it. Like most community colleges, you can't just like put everything and say, all right, we're going to have an international services because we don't necessarily have the budget to do that. So what can we sort of pull together and, and allow us to do this, but also allow us to get some of the other work done that we have to get done? We came up with the outreach services idea. So that entailed military and veterans, early college, commitment scholarship program, service learning, and international services. So I was asked to be the director of that. That was how it kind of started. How does a student in a small town in Sweden or a gigantic city in China hear about NMC? A lot of times it's because they have been exchange students here at the high school for maybe a year, or perhaps it's a, a local citizen that comes to the college and says, we have some friends over in you know, Madagascar or something like that, and they have a son or a daughter. They'd really like her to come to the United States. Could you contact them? And sometimes it's just through the Internet. One year we had a student from Kenya that came over, and he arrived here in January and one of the coldest days of the year, and I went to the airport to pick him up, and he's in a little windbreaker coat. And we walk up to the car, and I, it was below zero, and he's just shivering. And he says, I don't know if I made the right decision. And I told him, I said, I think you've made the right decision, because he was interested in working with the auto tech group. And I asked him that. I said, well, why are you interested in doing auto tech? 
And he said, I know that Henry Ford was from Michigan. And he said, in Kenya, my village is on the coast. So I'm, I grew up around the water. And so I wanted to be at a school that had an auto tech program that was by the water that was in Michigan. His village collected money to be able to send him over here to the United States to do his, uh, his studies. Wow. Yeah. And he's great. He's actually, he's a mechanic out in Kansas right now. Works for a business out there. As I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy what I'm doing. It's exciting to go to work. Uh, as you know and, and others know, our office handles all the study abroad opportunities. And so for the past seven years, I think we've sent about over 450 students and over 30 faculty to about 17 different countries in the world. And that's been a joy for the reason, again, that I explained earlier, to get people that may not have traveled out of the United States before into a culture that is new and it's exciting and it challenges them. We haven't talked about this yet, but I've been teaching at NMC for the past 10 years as well. So I teach a class, uh, a world cultures class, and, and I'm able to take my students to a place that I teach about. We had a faculty member about 10 years ago that was teaching a class in world cultures. And at that time, it was more focused on the arts of non-Western world arts. She retired and I, again, I was working with the international students. I had my education degree. It's like that. I had a master's degree. And so temporarily, I said, well, I'd love to try that out. Because I, again, wanted to get back in the classroom. So they let me do it, and I loved it. And ended up changing the curriculum, making it more experiential for the students, bringing in guests. Mark Alderman, who's local, he's a instructor out at Benzie Central. And he comes into my class every year because he studied drumming in West Africa. So he brings in all his drums and, it's, and he does a lesson for my students on African drumming and the importance of that to communities and to the culture in West Africa. And the students get to play. And so they actually make music and they play these Af African rhythms. So we have that. I have Martha Hubble from Columbia who comes in and she does an introduction to Latin dance. And she gets the students up and dancing. So they get to actually not just hear about it and listen to it, they get to do it, right? And I think that is a critical piece. So anything that I can work into the class that allows students to touch, taste, smell, that sensory input is is great. And so again, I bring in food. I always go to our international students to give the students an insight from a, an actual person that lives in, in these countries. And then we take advantage of the International Affairs Forum and we go to those. We also have Interlochen, right? We also have the State Theater. We have people that have retired here. We have people that have moved here that are from other countries. So I really try and seek out those people to give a primary source of really a firsthand account of these countries and cultures. I have a very vivid memory of you dropping by the University Center to borrow cricket <laughs> equipment to play with your students this, this past year. We were studying India at the time, and, and I thought, you know what, 400 million or more Indians watch the Cricket World Cup. I mean, here in the United States, we don't watch the Cricket World Cup, but there are more people than, than exist in the United States that are watching that, right? And just from one country. So it's, it's, it's very important to them. And of course, that was brought to India by the British. So I thought, well, let's, Let's give the students a chance to try it out. And the E's office, as you know, John, had the equipment. And so I thought, okay, let's get the gym. I'll get my class over there. We'll, we'll set them up. I have 
I had Dave Rowney come in. He's a guy from the UK and he came in from my morning class and taught them how to play. The students got to experience the afternoon class. I taught myself, <laughs> but it went, it went fine. And then uh, what we did is we worked with Sodexo to have sort of tea and scones because when they're playing a test match, uh, usually you have a break after an eight-hour match or something like that, and you have tea. So we had the students have a little tea and scones during that time. So now my hope with that is that when somebody, they meet somebody from India and that person from India says, oh my gosh, the, the cricket team from Mumbai is playing the team from Delhi or something like that. And everybody's going to be watching. They'll understand what that game is because they've experienced it themselves. And I've been, to, I've been lucky enough to take my students to seven different countries. So I've been with them to Peru, Cuba, Costa Rica, Greece, Morocco, Brazil, and India. Each of those has its own uniqueness. And I'll tell you about a certain trip. When we were in Greece, I wanted my students to go to a, because the refugees were coming over from Syria and coming into Athens. So I wanted my students to understand what it was like for them. And so I contacted our provider over there at the time. And I said, can we do something like this? And they said, well, let, uh, we don't usually do that, but let me see what we can find. There was a, a group that sort of helped the refugees to find a place to live. They gave them food and clothing and things like that. They ran a soup kitchen. So I took my students there for the whole day and they worked there. They volunteered because that's something that we always do with our study abroad. We have a service component to it. And I asked if we could hear from one of the parents that had come from Syria. So the director of the program brought us into this conference room and she brought in a mother and the mother had a daughter who's probably five or six, maybe six, seven years old. And she sat down and one of my students asked the woman, she said, well, what was the reason? We said, we know it's a war-torn country right now, but what really got you to go? And the lady looked at, and she, we had an interpreter there and she said, well, my daughter was coming home from school one day with her best friend. And my daughter was on the road and she saw me. And so she started to run to give me a hug. And her friend was sort of dawdling in the back. All of a sudden, a bomb came out from the air, hit the ground, blew her friend to pieces. And that was experienced by the child and the mother. And, and her husband came home that evening and she said, I can't stay here. We can't. We, we need to get out. So, I mean, it brought tears to my students' eyes, and it really, you know, kind of left a lump in my throat, too. And it made us realize that, you know what, even if you don't have a lot of money in the United States, <laughs> you're in a lot better place than you are, you know, being over there in a, in a, in a war zone. So, you know, that, those kind of things will last. Those kind of things are important for students to understand and to see and to hear. The key piece of this is is really reflection, right? And those of us that are teaching experientially know that 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 is a critical part of any curriculum that's experiential is that reflection piece. And so we take time throughout the experience overseas to sit down to reflect on what's happened over the last. We don't do it every night, you know, but we probably do it at least three times. If we're there for two weeks, probably do it four times. And let the students speak. Let them get it out, so to speak. And it's amazing. And a lot of times there's tears. 
But from that comes understanding and acceptance and empathy and these things that are critical for people that are going to be living in the next century or centuries ahead. Am I tired when I come home? Um, Yeah, but uh, while I'm there on the ground, I really feel energized. Um, And I think if you talk to a number of the faculty that have led study abroads with NMC, they will say the absolute same thing. This was great, Jim. Thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks a lot. I enjoyed doing it. If anybody ever wants to stop by and chat and see what we could possibly do for them, we'll hopefully be there. It was really apparent to me during our conversation just how passionate Jim is about connecting our NMC students to the rest of the world. One of the opportunities he provides his students is through the Celia Connect program. That's a virtual exchange that takes place outside of the classroom for two hours each week for eight weeks. Students connect synchronously with their peers in the Middle East and in North Africa. The interaction helps them establish a deeper understanding for the perspectives of others around the world. And at the same time, they're developing 21st century skills, critical thinking, cross-cultural communication, and media literacy. Interested in learning more about Celia? It's spelled S-O-L-I-Y-A. We'll leave a link in the episode notes. I know what you're thinking. John, it's time to visit the Nornat Nook. Let's hear from our favorite northern naturalist. Hello everyone, it's James Dake from Grass River Natural Area in Bel Air, Michigan. Today, I'm reading the introduction to Grass River's Field Guide to Northwest Michigan. It's a local guide to Northwest Michigan's plants, animals, geology, and history. My first knowledge of local flora and fauna did not come from a formal or technical background. My initial understanding of the plants and animals around me came from a field guide, a book much like this one. I was fascinated by the diversity of life in this region and the accessibility of any person to be able to study it in their own backyard. I was astounded to learn that every plant and animal had a name, and each had relationships to other organisms. In time, the alien and unknown forest became a tapestry of familiar living things. From these first experiences identifying local flora and fauna stemmed my passion for science, biology, and the natural world. This later led to a formal education, training, experience, and a path into the field of ecology and interpretation. The goal of this book is to forge similar paths for its readers. While every reader may not make the natural world their vocation, this field guide is offered as a primer. A field guide is a compilation of the flora and fauna of a region, a catalog of species and their physical descriptions to aid in identification. While the design of this book may seem rigid and logical, its purpose and goals extend far beyond objective science. In addition to a simple inventory, the photographs and species here tell a story. Many of these photographs were never taken with the intention of including them in a field guide but were captured over the course of 10 years through a range of outdoor experiences. Each photograph is tied to a vivid memory. Some of these photographs were taken on leisurely walks in parks and some deep in the backcountry. Others were composed during boggy off-trail explorations, boot deep in mud or lost in swarms of mosquitoes. Some were sought out, while others were encounters or surprises that left me in awe. From the side of the highway to the shores of remote lakes, each photograph tells a tale. This is because we do not simply observe wildlife, we experience it, we live within it. 
Each person has a story of a wildlife encounter or a place that left an impression on them. Special experiences in the outdoors create lovers of the outdoors. This book is made from these experiences, and it is these experiences that this book seeks to facilitate. In creating a field guide, one gets a deep understanding of the makeup of a landscape or the recipe of an ecosystem. Each species adds its own particular character to an environment. So what is it that makes Northwest Michigan distinct? What is our story? The essence of the region is found in these pages. It is the combination of the fierceness of the American badger and the eerie howl of the loon. It is our Great Lakes lit up beneath shimmering northern lights. It is the pungent odor of balsam fir and the strength of white oak. It is freshwater fish swimming atop ancient ocean coral. It is a bobcat crouching beneath a ragged jack pine or a black bear sauntering through a cedar swamp. This region is a medley of the Midwest, the Great Lakes, and the Northwoods. It is a bridge both in form and function between the deciduous and the boreal. This book is an attempt to record the essence of this region. The life on each of these pages can all be experienced at Grass River Natural Area. This place is yours to explore, is yours to appreciate, and it is yours to protect. Get your copy of Field Guide to Northwest Michigan by ordering through your favorite local bookstore. It's also available on the Grass River website, grassriver.org. The NMC Extended Ed Office is all about growth mindset. So help us make this podcast better. What do you like? What do you not like? We promise you won't hurt our feelings. We want to be serving you. Leave us a voice memo or an email or a message on social media or all three. You can find links to those different methods in the episode notes. Our theme music is provided by Sweetwave Audio. For custom music, visit sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. The NMC Driveways podcast is brought to you by NMC Extended Education. Thanks for listening. I'm John Plow from before. As I think Rick Steves once said, somebody asked him, well, what, what is international travel and what's it do? And he said, it carbonates your life. And I love that. It carbonates it. It fizzes it up, right? Northwestern Michigan College. Driveways.